0: I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin.
1: And I'm David Gura. Listen to the big take on the iHeartRadio
0: app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This podcast should not be used as a substitute for medical or mental health advice. Individuals are advised to seek independent medical advice, counseling, and or therapy from a healthcare professional with respect to any medical condition, mental health issue, or health inquiry, including matters discussed on this podcast. This episode discusses abuse, which may be triggering to some people. The views and opinions expressed are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent the opinions of Red Table Talk Productions, iHeartMedia, or their employees. I had it in my head that we were strong. We could
0: overcome this. We're not weak. I'm not weak. And I just kept telling myself that over and over. And I, I would constantly say no matter how bad i have it somebody else out there has it way worse than i have and that kind of helped
1: me overcome the obstacles lots of people talk about having narcissistic parents and everyone who has had that history obviously has different stories but there are similar themes the fear confusion self-blame can result in so many difficult experiences that trail a person into adulthood most pointedly Many survivors of parental narcissistic abuse are afraid of becoming like their toxic parent when they become parents. Sometimes one person's story of a narcissistic childhood can capture the themes that are observed in many people's experiences. The story of our guest in this episode is powerful because aspects of it will feel so familiar to so many survivors. Her story of having endured a manipulative, abusive parent who would vacillate between being interesting and engaging to reactive, invalidating, and abusive is the story of how trauma bonds are formed, the triangulation, gaslighting, and manipulation that can fill survivors with shame and self-blame the many ways that children adapt to these situations, and how all of this shapes our personalities and how we go through the world in adulthood. The volatility and unpredictability of having a narcissistic parent makes childhood a place of fear and anxiety. In this episode, you will hear about her childhood, what the toxic and manipulative patterns look like, how they affected her and her sibling differently, and how it affected her relationship with her other parent. And in our next episode featuring this guest, you will hear her share openly and vulnerably how a history like this affected her as a parent. Hi, Dr. Romney. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, what was your dad like? Because I know that that's a lot of what your story is.
0: Growing up, my father was a very charming individual. We always were projected as if we were a very well-put-together family. We grew up. Poverty level, Mm -hmm. right there. However, we always had nice shirts, nice, you know, shoes, made sure that we always presented ourselves with manners. He would glare at us, make sure you behave, that type of look, you know, that mom look that you normally get. Behave yourself, except it would be a lot worse. And we essentially projected, like, we were keeping up with the Joneses. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Except that wasn't what it was like in the the behind-the-scenes it was very Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, so the father then who made sure you had the clean clothes and made sure your behavior was in line and all of that, the charming guy, that's the mm-hmm. one face of your dad?
0: That is the one facet of him, yes.
1: The client facing. What about <laughs> yes. that other face of your dad?
0: Behind closed doors, it was walking on eggshells constantly. You really had to gauge his behavior or his mood, rather, to, to really broach any subject, if you wanted to ask him any questions, he could sit there and be joking with you, and then all of a sudden you say the wrong thing, and it's like a switch goes off. And it's, what are you talking about? How dare you? Blah, 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 blah. And they just go off on a tirade. And his tirades would last anywhere from hours, like minimal hours, because they would they would start, stop, start, stop, start, stop. And like just to get that last word in, just to get that point really drilled home. Or days. They'll bring it back up the next day or the day after. Mm-hmm. It wasn't constant. I would, from memory, if memory serves me right, it'd probably be about
1: 50-50. So oh, wow. you'd,
0: you'd get the happy-go-lucky, adventurous, hey, I love I love music, I love education, let's go learn a little bit of history, let's go drive here, let's go drive there. So that part and that aspect, I also took on as I got older, I enjoyed that very, very much so. And I enjoyed, he drilled home that education was extremely important. Mm-hmm. So whatever you do in life, like, that is the key. So that I took, but it was very much a do as I say, not as I do persona. And that was kind of his rule. And if you got in trouble, he would fly off the handle. He would, you know, veins popping, red face, screaming at you. And I remember this particular one time that he answered the phone and it was his buddy and he was going to meet him at the karaoke bar or something along those lines. And he's like, you don't know what you're talking about. Oh, hello. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll be there in like 20 minutes or so. Hang up the phone and then continue
1: with the same amount of rage (laughs) screaming at my brother and I. That's so interesting. So let's unpack that. Because right from the jump, that tells Mm -hmm. me he had control over the behavior. You think so? Because to me, I felt like he didn't. Well, think about it. Scream, scream, veins popping, yell, yell, bad kid, bad kid, bad, bad, bad. The phone rings. If he didn't have control over his behavior, he he would have kept screaming. Wow. It was a
0: choice. So he chose to let himself go unbridled.
1: Yes, with you.
0: Wow. I just, I always thought that it was just because he called it seeing red. Like, he didn't know what he did when he... When he saw red, that's what he would say. Oh no, you don't know what you're talking about. Oh, I have no I have no recollection of that. That's convenient. I guess that's part of that gaslighting part. But
1: right, but you understand what I'm saying. Yeah. I'm seeing that you're surprised. Yeah, you know. That's very. And, and I think that that to me though is not unusual. A lot of people are told they saw red, they forgot, they lost consciousness. Okay. But then you, how did you all of a sudden, now you're seeing not red when you're talking to your buddy that you're going to see later. The red yeah, red is red.
0: That is a really, really excellent point. I never even thought of that.
1: I wonder if that left you wondering, well, he's not yelling at the other guy, so it's mm-hmm. got to be something about us. Oh, absolutely. Constantly.
0: And he would tell us it was us. He would constantly sit there and, you're the reason I divorced your mother. You're Mm -hmm. the reason that I lost my temper. It hurts me way more than it hurts you. Believe me, you got it a lot easier than I had when I was growing
1: up. So you got a lot of really classical parental gaslighting in all its forms and really manipulation even above and beyond the gaslighting in the sense Mm -hmm. that, Telling a child that they're the reason for as momentous and disruptive a decision as a divorce is a really, really cruel, literally what less than zero is about human development. Like this mm-hmm. person is has no problem saying these absolutely forbidden things. But what I'm wondering, though, is that this very father who was able to blame his kids for a divorce, tell them that you ain't this is nothing compared to what I went through while being abusive. That same person was able to turn it on for their friend. I'm mm-hmm. wondering if when he was with his friends, he was really well put together.
0: I've actually been out when he's out. He's the life of the party. Mm. He is the guy tracking jokes and, and the fun guy next door and just man about town. So I've seen it. I've seen what he's like.
1: So let me ask you this. Let's connect it back then to this idea of you're a military brat. You're moving all around. Yes. You've got this rageful father. He's the reason you're moving around. Mm -hmm. And you go from place to place. It's got to be confusing to have this rageful dad. And then you don't have consistent friends. How did that all play out for you? How did you cope with all of that?
0: Well, the psychological was actually the worst part. Honestly, I chose to project kind of a similar pattern where i would project everything's fine everything's hunky dory i am this funny outgoing girl i'm very much an extrovert let's go this place let's go that place but inside i felt very dark very depressed i guess i didn't really identify as depressed i identified it as just a low self esteem i don't want to minimize that but it was a low self esteem low self sense sense of self worth and I would write a lot. I would write to help me get it out. Mm -hmm, You know, mm -hmm. write the pros and cons of me. And I only told a few of my friends and I would just kind of gauge their reactions first. And, you know, kind of similar situations where they would do something that I had done to misbehave. They would get put in the corner. I would get beat with a two by four, thrown down the stairs. There's plenty of times where I didn't know how to express myself in, in a healthy cathartic manner because he didn't teach me and he also didn't exercise those healthy ways of emotional balance, I guess, is a good way to put that. What kinds of things would set him off? One time I was eating stuff out of the fridge and you, you weren't allowed to unless it was like dinner time. And I had stuck craft uh, singles on a, I was reading a book and I was eating cheese and he came through the door and I didn't expect him home. I hurry up and shoved it inside the book and I closed it I think I was about five and he found it oh god and I didn't say anything so he assumed my brother did it so I had all this guilt and Mm -hmm. that's not the first time that something like that has happened where I just let him assume that my brother did it I think again psychologically it's the screams that you can
1: still remember it's the beatings and expletives and everything else that you just still remember Here, when she was talking about hiding the slice of cheese for fear of getting in trouble and then blaming it on her little brother is a situation that many survivors of narcissistic parents find themselves in, shifting blame onto a sibling out of fear or even the belief that maybe the sibling may not get it as bad. And in this case, her brother was quite young. This triangulation and division within a family is one more example of the chaos of a narcissistic family system. She also shares the horror and pain of listening to her brother being punished for it. So these triangulated situations also foster further harm to all children in the home who either live in fear of the narcissistic parents' rage or witness it happening to siblings. And the harm can be magnified when a child feels responsible for the abuse a sibling is facing.
0: So it's a lot of guilt as I'm growing
1: up. And on top of that, just you never knew when he was going to flip out. So it was like living with a bucket of live grenades with the pins pulled out, and you just didn't know when they were going to blow. That
0: is an incredible metaphor. Yeah, absolutely. Because
1: I'm even feeling the tension as you're telling the story of what it would be like for a small child to be doing something as innocent as eating a piece of cheese and reading a story mm-hmm. and, and panicking and hiding the cheese. That's not a bad thing to do, by the way, eat a piece of cheese while you read a book. Basically, your answer, I'm interpreting that as everything set him off. You just didn't know. Anything, anything could set him off. Our session will continue after this break. What is your earliest memories? Do you feel like this was happening your entire life, even before oh, you could yes. remember? yes.
0: Okay. My brother was a baby. And I actually remember it was a two-story townhouse. And I remember looking up on the second floor and hearing them screaming, my, my mother and my father, and he, he broke the door off the hinges. And I just remember hearing her screaming. Mm-hmm. That's the
1: earliest memory. <laughs> That's your earliest memory. It, it's so hard when that is your earliest memory, which there was then so much fear. Fear would have yeah. been your earliest consistent emotion. Sadly, because fear memories, especially repeated fear memories, are so physically held They are typically the first memories or some of the clearest early memories that many survivors of parental narcissistic abuse will share. Memories of abandonment, fighting parents, accidents, physical abuse, and sometimes just an amorphous sadness are often the memories that are the earliest ones for survivors of these situations. When these are the earliest memories, It's a setup for anxiety and a loss of safety that can shadow survivors for a lifetime. I learned how to hide it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that big, bright smile,
0: right? And pretend.
1: And pretend, yeah. So I'm already getting a sense of what your parents' marriage was like. It sounds like it was certainly tumultuous, rudely, tumultuous volatile, <laughs> yes. a mess. And that's what, that was sort of the template you saw of their relationship, which must have it must have been so scary too, seeing that the one person who could protect you, your mother, was also she under couldn't. siege. She could yes.
0: She was very quiet, kept to herself. She didn't really... I want to say that she did maybe play with us a little bit, but for the most part... She was just constantly buffering between him and us Mm -hmm. just to make sure that we're kind of keeping the peace. So the verbiage, make sure that, oh, yeah, we're we're just, we're going to have spaghetti. Oh, I don't want spaghetti. Okay, all right, all right. We're going to do this instead. And appeasing, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. just, she tried to snuff it out. She tried to make the situation not happen. But I don't remember her interacting with us very much. And I remember Mm -hmm. that she specifically said her parents were very traditional so you couldn't get out of it so i guess that's that trapped in a cage feeling where you shouldn't get a divorce you have a religious background they don't believe in it again this is growing up in the 80s and the 90s and it was taboo it was pulling teeth getting child support so she worked three jobs she was never home she had to do what she had to do to keep mm-hmm. food on the table a roof over our head She is definitely a fighter. And I feel like, though, growing up, seeing that as an example, I didn't want to get married.
1: Yeah, I mean, completely understandable. It's so funny because when people grow up the way you did, witnessing the model of marriage you did, experiencing your own form of emotional and sort of physical abuse growing up, Mm -hmm. I almost see it clinically, I often see it go in two directions. One group is, I'm never getting married. No way, no how, absolutely not. The second group is at tremendous risk of repeating that cycle. Almost in trying to escape that situation, they will very quickly get into a relationship. They often won't be discerning because they don't know how to be discerning because Mm -hmm. they don't have any template. Get into something quickly and then just open their eyes and say, "Here I am." You know, they've literally recreated that cycle again. And so I kind of see it happening both sorts of ways. And some ways, not getting into a relationship is almost the safer path forward for folks to come Staying out of that. alone. <laughs> but, the, you know, obviously the best path forward is that we could work with people to help them see that none of this was their fault. That's the ideal. I was the latter of those two.
0: And mm-hmm. I ended up having my first real relationships, you know, you have holding hand phase yeah, yeah. <laughs> through middle school. And then there comes the, the the semi-serious as you get older. And I did that. I think the first two major relationships, I did that running headlong right into it and not seeing the signs because it's so incremental. And you would think growing up with it, you would see all those red flags. And it's almost like you almost want to deny it and ignore it because, you know, quote, unquote, in love.
1: Did you think they were red flags? Like, did you identify your father's behavior as a red flag as you started coming up through adolescence as into dating age? Not
0: until I was about 18. Okay. I would say when I was around 16, I started getting an inkling, mm-hmm. probably because things got a little more violent as I got older, and we'd try to set our boundaries or stand our ground, and he just wasn't having it. So, I think as I, I turned 18 and I started, he had disowned me <laughs> In his words, he had disowned me because my behavior wasn't conducive to what he thought I should be holding myself up to.
1: So going back, you said your parents got a divorce because your father left your mother when you were 12. Did he go on into a new relationship or did he just— Oh, immediately. Uh, Of course. Yes. Of course. And
0: actually now currently in present day, he's on wife that I know of, wife number five. I've disconnected all communications with him. He enjoys falling in love.
1: Uh, That he, those are his words. He loves falling in love. Correct. It's like saying I only want to eat the icing off the cupcake. You got to go on all in and eat the stump of the cupcake, or you're not committed to that cupcake. You can't all be all frosting all the time. And that's what analogies, right? (laughs) So that seems to be his thing, though. That I love falling in love. And think about what falling in love is. It's all dopamine. It's all reward. And it's all validation. Right? Once that part of the relationship is done, Adoration. Yeah, adoration, all that, the worshipy Uh, part. Once that part's done, the falling in love part, that's the fun swoopy down on the roller coaster. Then you're back in the line with the long line. You got to wait to get back on the roller coaster again. And that's when he stopped being interested. So at 12, when your parents split up, did you live with your mom, with your dad, or with both, like, go back and forth? I
0: went back and forth. Initially, it was with my mom. And then I hit my teen years, which wasn't graceful. It rarely (laughs) is. (laughs) So that is the part of growing up where you can't identify, or at least Mm -hmm. if you're not taught properly, you can't identify those emotions that you're feeling. Mm -hmm. And you get all this pent up something or other, either anxiety or rage or just, it got to a point as I grew up that I ended up wanting to feel something break. Like I'd get aggressive Living with my brother, it was like love-hate relationship. Again, it's probably mirroring and projecting mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the relationship that I saw with my parents. So we'd be best friends one day, and then the next day, he and I would duke it out and just throw him a boxing glove. And I'd grab a boxing glove and like, let's go. <laughs> so it was not healthy. And it's hard to, to find some outlet to really let that out. And then that's the other issue is that in the back of your mind, what's abuse? You know, it's not right, but you're also afraid to say something. So I did have a counselor at the time. We were, we didn't have enough money for therapy. Mm-hmm. So I did have a counselor at school and we scratched the surface, but I was very careful not to let too much information out simply because I didn't, I was afraid of the unknown. Yeah.
1: that I mean, that's so very common.
0: Yeah. I didn't want to accidentally screw things up for my mom. I didn't want to implicate her in any capacity. I didn't want her to be complacent with the whole situation either. So it was kind of a way of protecting, but also my mom and I just, we were also in a phase where we started butting heads really bad. So I would end up at some point, I was being bullied at school. I was was very much a, what they called a brown noser because I was constantly raising my hand because I wanted to know. I enjoyed psychology. Mm. I will say with the educational aspect, I was constantly raising my hands like, what does this mean? What does that mean? Mm. And so I got made fun of a lot. I got bullied a lot. I ended up um, just having a really rough time in school and at home. And then when I got home, I was frustrated. My mom was frustrated. She was working three jobs. She was trying, she was going to night school. She was trying to keep a roof over our heads. And so we just kind of went at it. And at one one time, she had had enough and I had had enough. And then I just, I switched over to my dad. I'm 15. I'm old enough to decide for myself. I'm done. And I called my dad. And I said, come get me. And that was the part where I remember distinctly saying, I had a conversation with my dad. And he's not going to be all peaches and roses. You know, you're going to have to do chores. You know, you're going to have to do this. Yes, yes, yes. I know. And I know it's discipline. I know it's discipline. And I said those words, you know, this is what's happening. So it's okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Mm -hmm. So we
0: switched, and I went to his house. I remember very distinctly, his third wife, she stood up for herself. Mm. She would fight for herself. She had just as much of a dominant personality as he did, which was extraordinarily volatile. I thought growing up was bad enough. This time in my middle school, into high school years, was extremely tough. And when I lived with him, they would fight. Mm -hmm. And... It got to a point, I remember he would be drunk. Alcohol usually played an amplification factor for him. And he drank every day, but his core personality was there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He wasn't all of a sudden that person. And they were screaming at each other. And he was just completely obliterated and had punched the front window and glass everywhere. There was blood everywhere. And I remember coming out of my room and they're fighting over the baby, At the top of the stairs. Oh, and I just, I literally, I've frozen, but I'm stood in the middle because I'm like, oh my God, one wrong sway and they're toppling over the stairs. It it freaked me out so bad. I mean, that is imprinted in my mind. And that's honestly, I'm trying not to tear up here. That's at that point, but I remember seeing like blood all over him and everything. Mm -hmm. Just it was bad. And the cops were called by the neighbors. Because I was terrified. I didn't know if I should or shouldn't. You know, it's my father. I'm supposed to love him.
1: I'm supposed to be loyal. But in the same capacity, this was literally an emergency. Ah, yeah, yeah. You know what? This has got to be the narcissism starter kit. They all say that. (sighs) But he did. He would get out of it. He keeps finding people to marry him, so he's obviously able to convince people of stuff. Do you remember what your emotions were? Like, there's, you know, knowing that no one's going to believe me even if I did say something.
0: Adapt, overcome. I had it in my head that we were strong, we could come overcome this, we're not weak, I'm not weak. And I just kept telling myself that over and over. I would constantly say, no matter how bad I have it, somebody else out there has it way worse than I have. And that kind of helped me overcome the obstacles. And I was like, if life throws me obstacles, I'm just going to go over every single hurdle and I'm going to pass with flying colors and that's how I'm going to go. Sometimes I get down on myself, but then eventually I always try to crawl back out of the well, so to speak, and just kind of raw myself
1: back up. And that's just how I'm wired, I suppose. Yeah, I think it is. Because I'd be curious to know, you said you have not this small, small brother you're talking about, but your two and a half year younger brother. My other brother. Yeah. Was he able to do that whole bring himself up? I've got to be strong kind of thing, too. We could
0: go through the same exact experience and he would tell me a totally different perspective. But he would shove things deep down inside and not say anything for years. Mm. And I wouldn't know until like he would write me letters or, you know, say something along those lines like, this actually bothered me. And he would be truthful with himself. Otherwise, he wouldn't label it as. Abuse is, is just was something that we grew up with. He didn't exhibit emotional states. Otherwise, he actually turned to addiction issues. Mm-hmm. Yes, I would expect that, yeah. To help cope with everything that he was feeling mm-hmm. because he didn't want to talk about it. He didn't want to relive it. I'm sure that maybe he felt things a little bit more. I say I grew up sensitive, but I wore it on my sleeve. I, I spoke about it. Mm-hmm. I feel like he might have been more emotionally sensitive and I never knew. mm Because even to this day, there are things that he's still trying to deal with and try to peel back and having a hard time. His was more physical aggression growing up. But right now, currently as an adult, he's actually one of the most even keeled, non-biased people I've ever met. And he'll tell you... A non-biased opinion. So if you have a dilemma, if you have a problem, he's very logical, he's very rational, and he's just such a, like, a Buddha-type
1: energy. That's amazing. He's just
0: very, just chill. And he's like, you know, things happen. You put it in the crap happens file. It is what it is. Or, Mm -hmm. which I didn't particularly like, but I'm glad that I had somebody to tell me the truth if I have a situation and I explain it to him and he says, well, you're in the wrong. Okay.
1: (laughs) You're supposed to be
0: on
1: my side. Right. Right. Well, he's able to see both sides. We will be right back with this conversation. Now, what was it like? Because obviously, what you were growing up with, the emotional abuse, the physical abuse, all of it, was not the norm. What would happen when you saw other people's lives? Maybe you went and played with a friend at their home or visited a friend at their home. You saw other people's lives. What was that like for you? What I went through, I thought was
0: normal. When I would see other people experiencing, oh, that was the other thing. That was fun. Hugs and kisses from their family. Yeah. My mom was not a touchy-feely person. She Mm -hmm. still isn't. She doesn't do the hugs and kisses. My father was the one that did that. Oh, and it would be right after he beat us. Oh, my goodness. So he would hit us with the metal belt of the metal buckle belts or the two by fours. And then he'd turn around and say, Now give me a hug. Oh, my gosh. And so that abusive. messed me up for a long time. I, I still, to this day, I have male friends. I, I've always had male friends growing up, but I still freeze up when somebody gives me a hug. And I'm just like, ah, What do I do with my hands? I don't know. But that type of hugs and kisses with their parents, especially with their fathers, I almost felt,
1: and I don't typically get jealous, but I almost felt a twinge of envy. I give you a lot of credit for just having a twinge. I think for other people, the envy and the jealousy of seeing those other kinds of homes where a hug was not sort of the, you know, because for you, the hug for them didn't come with abuse. For you, a hug was... Classically conditioned. It was paired with abuse. Mm-hmm.
0: With abuse, yeah, yeah.
1: And so we talk about, and I know are so well spoken about all of this. We talk about the trauma bond and all of that, right? In all my life, in all my career, I have never heard that tight an example of creating a trauma bond, beating someone, and then going in for the hug. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's the trauma bond right there. That it's the abuse. a a hug, love, and abuse. Which you carry on into, clearly, into adulthood. How could you not? So just to have that experience, and again, against the backdrop of the only other expectable source of affection your mother that wasn't mm-hmm. her way and i would speculate after the marriage she had to survive with your father i wonder She's how desensitized. much yeah very desensitized i yeah. mean she your mom would then very much qualify to what we would con- see in adult narcissistic abuse survivors right that kind mm-hmm. of down regulation. For many people, it's sort of not trusting those physical spaces, not trusting those emotional spaces. And you, know, you, you do sort of start feeling isolated within yourself, even from your own kids.
0: Shut down. Yeah, it, shut down. Oh, that is an excellent revelation. I didn't think of that because she did. She kind of shut herself off from us. I just thought it was because she was working constantly. Mm -hmm. She was exhausted constantly. She would yell at, you know, keep it down, you know, because she was trying to sleep. But that's a really good point.
1: Yeah, I mean, her nervous system may have been forever on high alert. Mm -hmm. It may have been because she had the added burden of being an adult who was attempting to protect kids in a situation where she couldn't protect them. And she probably knew there was no way to get help. And with a traditional family background where she had no recourse, she may have thought she couldn't get a divorce. The only sort of quote-unquote she had was that he left her, mm-hmm. but then she was left with this financial burden, not being able to be there with a child that in many ways was what your mom was experiencing and your brother and you as well. Mm-hmm. It's much more in line with what we also see in complex post-trauma see PTSD more because in narcissistic abuse and complex post-trauma, they're very associated. And in some adult survivors, when it's more severe, we do see that they look more like that they have complex post-trauma than they do the straight narcissistic abuse, which is sometimes a less severe look in a person. Their nervous system may not be quite as shut down in the same way. Mm.
0: And that plays into... What I experienced as I got older, I learned how to shut off my emotions, yeah when when things became too hairy mm-hmm. or somebody displayed too much emotion. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. for me, I also became desensitized.
1: yeah. That's exactly right. Desensitize is the perfect word. Because for you, safety-seeking, you did it in so many different ways. You did it through smiling. You did it through desensitization. But it created all these zones of fear, right? Mm-hmm. This is scary. That's scary. That's scary. And like you said, and then even these poignant, painful experiences of seeing, for example, a friend getting a hug, but it didn't require them to get beaten before they got that hug. That's right. an incredibly painful revelation.
0: And then you feel like, maybe I need a knight in shining armor, and then you Mm -hmm. jump headlong into those relationships that are not good for you, that are very similar in cycle. And you do kind of the same thing, like, do I need to argue? Do I need to, you create this unhealthy relationship or this unhealthy, putting them on a pedestal. Mm -hmm.
1: Did you ever blame yourself for your father's behavior?
0: For a long time, Mm -hmm. until I found out my grandfather had a conversation.
1: He was estranged. so. I didn't realize systematically we were cut off from their side of the family. So your father's father—you're talking about your grandfather—and they—he was estranged from his own father. Yes. Oh, interesting. I found out
0: that he was always like that, and that was like a burden off of my shoulders. Mm -hmm. I I was just in shock. I was like, "So it's not us?" Mm -mm. No. God, he would throw bricks at my head. Mm -hmm. I'm the oldest. He was Mm -hmm. also the oldest. So that type of dynamic. And my grandfather says, you know, I love my children, Though, so do not get me wrong. I love my children, all of them. But your father came out an asshole.
1: Wow. That's fascinating.
0: And I guess that's my question to you, is that, can
1: you just be born like that? Or is that more of a pattern? You bring up a really interesting question here, because given how abusive your father was, brick throwing and really physically violent siblings, I don't know if your father ever got arrested or got in trouble in school as a kid or any of those things, because The level of extremity of what you're describing could be more in line with something we call conduct disorder. And conduct disorder is a pattern where kids—these are kids who are physically violent against other kids, physically violent against their own siblings. They may harm animals. They may set fires. They may be truant from school. They may shoplift. Those sorts of patterns we'd see prior to the age of 15, when Mm -hmm. that pattern gets established, and then we see, once they're 18 and over, that they're continuing to engage in behavior where they're menacing people, they're not adhering to social norms, they're breaking the law, they're not following the rules, they have a parasitic lifestyle, that kind of stuff, that's when we start getting into what we call antisocial personality or what's sometimes called psychopathy. So when that childhood behavior is so severe and almost violent out of nowhere... Like they're little, like they're five years old and doing some real harm and acting out. That sometimes gives people pause because that may be an indicator of this long-term cycle. It's not clear. I don't know if that's Mm -hmm. your dad's whole story. But what we do know is that Mm -hmm. when people go on to develop even narcissistic personalities, we do know that there's a certain kind of temperament that certain kids can be born with. They behaviorally act out a lot. They're very attention-seeking. They're very competitive. They have to win it at all costs. They will overwhelm their peers. They will overwhelm their siblings. That temperament, nobody likes those kids. Nobody. (laughs) So every interaction that they have with the world... Is people saying, stop that. No, don't do that. Nobody likes those kids, so they're always invalidated. Okay. That temperament plus the invalidation can be the seeds for that ongoing development of narcissism. Interesting. So unless there are people who really are good at that, right. then who could really support a kid like that, which the vast majority of people cannot.
0: I noticed as I got older and I was able to stand up for myself more and speak up for myself that was the hardest part i realized i almost look at him now as like a 5 year old with a temper tantrum
1: yeah forever yes exactly it is here are some takeaways from my conversation with today's guest Many times after people endure a narcissistic childhood, or frankly any narcissistic relationship, they may be told, oh, come on now, take responsibility for yourself. You can't keep blaming someone else for your struggles. In the rush to make survivors take responsibility, it is also essential that they also are given a framework for how antagonism and manipulation and invalidation from a parent affect us developmentally, to learn to connect those dots. Then and And only then can survivors be expected to move to accountability. Asking for accountability without a framework more often ends up in self-blame for survivors than a sense of true personal responsibility. And for my next takeaway, triangulation of siblings and family members being turned against each other is common in narcissistic families. This can leave siblings feeling as though they are betraying each other or may even feel compelled to betray each other in the service of the narcissistic parent. It's a terrible legacy of these family systems. Children may be trying to do anything they can to survive these family systems and may, years later, still experience strong emotions as adults when they recognize that their siblings and other family members were harmed if they were ever in a situation of blaming them to protect themselves. In my next takeaway, this guest story shows us that within one family, siblings can have a range of reactions to a toxic parent, and even a range of ways they conceptualize what happened to them. She shared that she was more emotionally restricted and even obsessive, something that may have given her a sense of control in her situation. Her brother reacted quite differently. The differences in experiences can sometimes leave siblings within the same family system wondering if they read or are reading the situation right With a difficult parent, a key element of healing from narcissistic abuse, whether in a family system or in a relationship, is to hold space and acknowledgement for your experience and to not gaslight yourself. Children in narcissistic family systems are often put in different roles. Some are scapegoats, some are golden children, some get it worse than others, and as a result, You may have had different experiences, but that doesn't make your experience any less valid or real. Having a complicated journey with the other parent, the one who was not narcissistic in this case, is to be expected in these situations. Only as she grew up is she slowly recognizing that some of her mother's patterns may have been a manifestation of being in a toxic relationship, the emotional distance, the disengagement. But at the time, a child may only see that they are not being protected, and this can result in difficult relationships with that parent. As time proceeds, this story can play out quite differently for people, and there are many ways it can go. But there can sometimes be guilt over recognizing that the parent also went through something difficult you didn't see at the time. It is not a child's responsibility to be a parent to their own parent. But this is just one more example of the collateral harm that an antagonistic and difficult parent can do to a family system. A big thank you to our executive producers, Jada Pinkett-Smith, Fallon Jethro, Ellen Rakitin, and Dr. Romani Dervasola. And thank you to our producer, Matthew Jones, associate producer, Mara Della Rosa, and consultant, Kelly Ebeling. And finally, thank you to our editors and sound engineers, Devin Donaghy and Calvin Bailiff.